world of strong men, a nice lady came along. I'm kind and smart and young and kind and good uh, and kind and young. Is that the Prime Minister singing? Uh, kinda. After fashion, I was googling to see if I could find some audio from Jacinda Ardern's visit to the cast of Mary Poppins in Auckland yesterday and failed. But I did accidentally find that clip instead, which is from a recent episode of the British puppet show Spitting Image, where they cast Ardern as a kind of weird Mary Poppins figure. So I thought I'd play a bit of that instead. As far as I can tell, the song's called super kiwi socialistic empire of jacinda and it confirms that just like when i lived in the uk for a bit british people are really quite rubbish at faking kiwi accents you have the impertinence to be ill in new zealand tick tick stuff 2020 election podcast Anyway, no mai, hari mai ki tick tick stuff's 2020 election podcast. Mo te rāmere, whiringa aunuku, te kauma onu. Ko Adam Dudding tēnei. Ko Eugene Bingham tēnei. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about this election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular korero. There is one day until the election. One day. I mean... Actually, for a solid number of New Zealanders, the countdown to voting day is now into negative numbers, kind of, because they've actually already voted sometime in the past two weeks. But even if those one and a half million or so over-enthusiastic participants in democracy are rendering all the politicians' last-minute appeals kind of redundant, tomorrow, New Zealand General Election 2020, Saturday, October the 17th, a month later than it should have been, but whatevs, is still the big day. Yeah, so big that stuff's only gone and arranged and all singing, all dancing, live streaming, election special thingy. It starts at 7 o'clock tomorrow. That's the very moment when polling places close. So if you go anywhere near stuff.co.nz from that time on, I imagine it will be impossible to avoid links to the live stream. Indeed. It might be worth a watch. Live crosses from a horde of brilliant stuff reporters from around the country as the results come in. Interviews with esteemed political commentators and experts. Top-notch anchoring from broadcast superstar Alison Moore and from Sunday Star Times editor Tracy Watkins. And, in a clear act of desperation, the show's producer, Carol Hirschfeld, has also asked Eugene and me to pop in and occasionally squeeze onto the Mission Control Decision Desk throughout the evening. Pretty sure it's not called the Mission Control Decision Desk, Adam? In my mind, it will always be the Mission Control Decision Desk. Hmm, all right. Well, that's a whole day away. Before then, we have an entire episode of Tick Tick to get out, the final pre-election episode, and probably the second to last episode of all, seeing we'll probably pop back up one more time after that to survey the post-election, post-coalition, negotiation, parliamentary landscape, depending on what happens, eh? Yeah, it could be interesting. Will the Māori Party be back? Will the Greens be back? Will Judith Collins survive the night? Has Jacinda Ardern's apparent one-woman campaign been successful? So many questions. But anyway, that's days away, or, or weeks or months, if the negotiations go on for a bit. What have we got today? Well... Last night, Thursday night, was the final leaders' debate, Ardern versus Collins, round four on TVNZ. And normally on a debate night, we'd stay up a little past our usual bedtimes and squeeze in a quick post-match analysis for the following morning show. But, quick confession time, we actually missed last night's debate live because we were in the stuff offices doing a bit of a technical run-through for the election night live stream. Which means, Adam, that the world had missed out on your fourth word soup election analysis. Indeed. Sorry about that. But 
Just like when you go to the restaurant and you order the vegetable soup and they say, soup's off, would you like the chowder instead? And you go, oh, well, is a chowder really a soup? And will I like it? And has it got any of those creepy little octopuses in it? And and then they where, say... Where is this going, Adam? Uh, what I'm trying to say is, debate word soup is off, but nostalgic tick-tick retrospective chowder is on. I'm going to look back at the 10 weeks that we've been covering the selection and pull out the words that really resonated. Ah, see. Let's hear it then. <clears throat> so this is the Tick Tick COVID election retrospective chowder. Level 2, Simon Bridges. Tasman Bubble, Todd Muller. Maga Hat, Judith Collins. Level 3, Arg. September, November, sometime, never. All right, October 17. Level 2.5, QAnon, 5G, masks. Mr. Dern, double duty, debate part one. Fiscal hole, shock polls, online trolls, fiscal hole. Mr. Dern, if I may, debate part two. Referendums, referenda, Billy Takahika, NZF, SFO, OMG. Level two, tick, tick, fiscal hole, tick, tick, more polls, tick, 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 tick. Sorry, I didn't quite know how to end it. Beautiful. Right, so there's quite a bit to fit in today, including a really interesting interview with Professor Grant Duncan, who runs the Stuff Massey Political Survey. But first, I have two questions for you, Eugene. Firstly, why does your audio sound a bit different today? Long story, but basically it's been because I've been out and about today and couldn't get back to my bedroom studio in time to do it the usual way. All right, fair enough. Secondly, Eugene, what's been happening? That's a much easier question to answer. Stuff has reported that New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters and high-ranking MPs were briefed about the New Zealand First Foundation's expenses and activities one year before it first made headlines. So the Stuff investigation finding contradicts Peters' consistent claims the Foundation had nothing to do with his political party. Church leaders in South Auckland are using the referenda to motivate their congregations to vote. While many pastors, priests and reverends say they are reluctant to make party political statements from the pulpit, they say they are encouraging their flocks on moral positions around the euthanasia referendum in particular. Greens co-leader Marama Davidson has hinted that she would be open to a ministerial role if the party returns to government. She told media yesterday the party had reached the point where both co-leaders could consider ministerial roles. James Shaw is a Minister for Climate Change and Minister for, Stat- for Statistics, try and say that quickly, but Davidson, who became co-leader in 2018, partway through the Greens' first term with ministers in government, has not yet held a portfolio. So, since MMP came along in 1996, most of the focus has gone on the party vote column on election night. Sure, individual electorates can be interesting. You've got your Epsoms and so on, where a single MP might drag a smaller party into Parliament, even if it gets under 5% of the vote. And local electorates are also interesting when an MP for a bigger party has a really low list ranking for some reason, so they have to do well in their electorate or miss out on Parliament. But there's one set of electorate seats that are almost always intriguing, the Māori seats. For decades, Labour had an almost total lock on the Māori electorates, but in 1996, New Zealand first took the lot. Labour claimed them back in 1999. Then in 2005, the newly formed Māori party snatched four seats, and then five in 2008. So that party's power started to wane, and then eventually in 2017, with a rearguard action, Labour restaked its claim for all the seats. This year, though... It seems like there are plenty of votes up for grabs in the seven Māori seats. We wanted to catch up with... Carmen Padahi, the Potiaki editor at Stuff. ...to tell us what to look out for tomorrow night and to ask her about an intriguing tactical manoeuvre that's been underway during the campaign. Kia ora, Carmen. 
Kia ora. How are you, Eugene? Very good, thank you. Very good. So, first of all, it seems like polling has shown us that one of the Māori electorate seats, or at least one, Waiariki, is potentially up for grabs. Can you tell us about what's happening there and what we might expect to see in the battle between Labour's Tamati Coffee and the Māori Party's Rarawari Waititi? Yeah, what's interesting about um, Waiariki is that Tamati Coffee actually took the seat of Te Ururua Flavel uh, at the last election, which was a real surprise to everybody. So he managed to wrestle that off Te Ururua Flavel and basically um, sent uh, the Māori Party packing from Parliament. This time, interestingly, a lot of people have written off all the Māori electorates did not think that there was going to be a close race in any of the electorates. What we've found with Waiariki from the uh, Māori TV poll that they've just had, and as well as with the Hui, is that it's actually a lot closer than people gave credit to. So Rawari Waititi, he's tried to uh, go for the seat before in the past. So um, he's also a, a leader of Te Whanau Apanui and was um, instrumental in setting up a lot of the iwi roadblocks in that Bay of Plenty area. So he's really well known in that area and it's no surprise that he's quite popular. He's an excellent Te Reo Māori speaker as well and has been doing a lot of community work there. So Tamati Coffee's um, on 38% for preferred candidate and Rawari Waititi is at 26%. So that's, a, that's a very small margin. And, and, and also the undecided is 24%. Which is so a huge it could go factor. anyway. Mm. Huge factor. Yeah. Um, but it's not just um, Waiariki, actually, that's closer than what than people believed. Also in Tamaki Makoto, John Tamihere, the Māori Party uh, co-leader, is up against uh, Penny Hinare, whānau auto minister with the Labour government, and also Marama Davidson from the Greens. Now, that electorate is also very close. Um, so it could swing for John Tamihere. People don't expect it to, but you never know. And the other electorate, which is Te Tai Hauru, which is held by Adrian Rudafe, Although it's not as close as these two, as Tamaki Makoto and Waiariki, because Deb Narewa Packer, who's co-leader of the Māori Party, she's really well-liked in that area. She does a lot of uh, iwi work and she's really well-known. So that fight will be interesting to watch too. No one's expecting her to win, but it's an outside possibility. And the last one is Te Tai Tunga with Taku Te Ferris. Now, he's a young guy that has come in, and a lot of uh, media commentators have um, been really impressed with his messaging. He's very clear about what he says. He, too, is a uh, um, fluent Te Reo Māori speaker. He has uh, whakapapa in the South Island as well as up the East Coast, and uh, he's proving to be quite a challenge for Reno Tirikatene. You mentioned, too, that and, we, and we, what we're seeing is a lot of very energised, excellent candidates uh, battling for these seats, and, and the Māori Party in particular seem to have some really, you know, on-the-ball candidates running. We've also seen in some of the electorate debates that I've seen, the Hui Porti ones and the, and the Māori TV ones, it's fair to say some of the Labour MPs have come across as pretty lacklustre. Do you know why that might be and what's going on? I was just thinking about that on um, uh, Sunday after watching the last um, Māori TV debate which was Tamaki Makoto. So we had Marama Davidson, John Tamihere and um, Peni Henare on. And he, Peni Henare, he's, he's popular. 
He's got the Ngāpuhi vote in Tāmaki Makoto. Now, the Ngāpuhi vote cannot be underestimated because there are so many Ngāpuhi people living in the Auckland uh, region, and so they're going to vote for him because of his uh, whakapapa to James Henare. So you cannot underestimate the power of whakapapa when it comes to these Māori electorate seats. And so does he need to come out strong? Right. Maybe not, because part of the reason is this time all of the Māori electorate MPs are on the list. So at the last election in 2017, the Māori MPs that sat in the Māori electorates weren't on the list except for Calvin Davis and um, Wairiki, Tamati Coffey. And now this time, he's the furthest down the list. So he's at 37. All the rest of them are from 2 to 30. And so they've got a high chance. If they do not get in the, on the electorate candidate vote, they could get in on the list vote. So if you're on the list and you've got your seat already, you wouldn't have to use attack politics. You wouldn't have to defend yourself um, so bravely. So there's something else that you wrote about recently that's been going on throughout the campaign from some of the parties. You called it a push for too far votes. Can you explain what you mean by that and what the implications of it would be? Oh, I love that term, too far. It's two for one uh, in the Māori electorates, potentially... Māori roll voters, there's about 250,000 of them, potentially could put up to 16 Māori MPs into Parliament if they use their vote strategically. So this two-for-one vote works like this. The Māori MP, uh, the Labour's, Labour's Māori MPs are all on the list and Greens, Marama Davidson and Tamaki Makoto and Elizabeth Kerekere in uh, Ikoro Rafati. She is also on the list. So what the Māori Party is saying is you vote for them for uh, candidates. You give them all seven seats. That gives you seven Māori MPs. You uh, vote the list for either Greens or Labour, and you get in the seven Labour candidates as well as the two Greens candidates. Mm. So that is potentially 16 Māori MPs just from seven seats. Wow, which is an interesting strategy, isn't it? Because usually in the MMP, you see the party pushing for the party vote. But what the Māori Party is saying is, give us your electorate vote. Yes. In Te Taitunga, what was interesting is during the Māori TV Te Taitunga debate, Ariana Paratu Tanganui Tamati from the Greens, she said, give us your party vote. And then she backed the Māori Party's Takus of Ferris, to give him the candidate vote. She said, that's a good idea. I'll take the party vote, you take the candidate vote. <laughs> Which is strange politicking, but yeah. fascinating at the same time. Yeah, really and then Teddy was standing there. Um, so, no, I'll have the two ticks. So he wants two ticks, obviously. And that's what uh, the Labour MPs are constantly saying. Give us your two ticks. Um, because it'll give us the mandate to be able to make the changes um, that you want us to make and to be able to um, work as the Māori caucus, which is all, which has been the largest ever Labour Māori caucus was in the last parliament. And the largest number of Māori MPs was at the, largest, at the last um, election as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Sweet. Thank Kia you. Ora. 
Okay, time for our occasional series, the campaign playlist, where we take songs with a political twist, usually from campaigns past. So, Mr. Speaker, we're just going to finish up with a bit of a song. This one is slightly stretching the definition because it wasn't during a campaign as such, but it does contain an election plug, so I'm going to say we should allow it. But also, it's just brilliant to hear two politicians performing in Parliament. And these are actually real people this time, not spitting image puppets. All right, let's hear it. Santa baby, camping contributions under the tree. It's been an awful long year. Santa baby, sign up to Marty Party tonight. So that's Marama Fox and Ti Urodorf level. Her on the vocals, him on the ukulele during the adjournment debate in Parliament, December 2016. They were the co-leaders of the Māori Party at the time, and they were putting in a Christmas wish list for the 2017 election. Unfortunately for them, it didn't work out, and their singing skills had been missing from Parliament for the past three years. And, oh boy, you'd be hard-pressed to find two better performers. Next year could be such a hoot If you take the Māori Party votes Santa honey, minister and that's not So, back in the very first episode of Tic Tac on August the 4th, we got this guy on the show. Grant Duncan, Associate Professor at Massey University. So, that time, Grant was telling us about the first round of the Stuff Massey election survey. But as the election campaign ground on and extended by a month, Grant went back for a second round of surveying of Stuff Readers. Now the results from that are in, and we started by asking him what they showed about New Zealanders' political engagement. So we're one day out from the election itself, so we thought we'd start by asking you a bit about election day. And you've got some interesting results around political engagement, and it sounds like going through a pandemic has made us all more interested in politics and more likely to vote. So it seems, yes. There was a worry for a while there, wasn't there, that uh, this would be a low turnout election, people afraid to just go outdoors perhaps and and go to a polling booth. Also, there was a period there where people just seemed uh, over the news, over politics. You know, the lockdown had really worn people down. So a lot of the pundits were predicting a low turnout. It's not happening that way. I think the early voting numbers really show that people want to get out there and vote. People realise that it is safe enough to vote. The Electoral Commission's done a great job of making the polling booths safe to visit. They've given people alternative methods of voting if they have underlying health conditions and have good reasons not to go outdoors and mix and mingle. So I'm picking that it's going to be a really good turnout despite people's pessimism before, and that's really great. And The other thing is that there's just a lot at stake in this election too, mm. so that's made it important as well. Last time we had you on, it was uh, back at the beginning of the campaign, really. We talked about the first round of the Massey Stuff political survey. So can you just tell us briefly about the, the mechanics of the second round of the survey, how many people took part, and what we need to consider when we're looking at the results in terms of skew and so forth? Well, the uh, turnout for the or the, the participation numbers for the second round were much lower than the first round. And that was one of the things that gave us to believe that people were just over this election and over politics and news and so on and so forth. And because of the relatively low numbers, okay, there were like 13,000, which for most surveys is huge, but it also meant that that sample was more skewed towards, uh, shall we say, um, basically older white people, particularly males. So it was definitely an unrepresentative sample, put it that way. 
Right, but you're still able to sort of extract information out of that by making comparative analysis of different people, yeah? Exactly. So, for example, we have enough Labour and Green voters on there to at least get a rough ballpark uh, understanding of, of the distribution of political opinions across the spectrum once you just look at it on a percentage rate by party preference. Right. And was there anything that leapt out at you in terms of a shift in mood or or the issues that rose to the surface in the second survey compared to the first? Uh, Well, certainly one of the things that got us going for the second round was that in the first round we asked people uh, whether they would like to see coming out of the post-COVID rebuild of the economy. Do they just want back to business as usual or do they want a re-examination and a a change to the economic system itself? Now, we were surprised that a a majority of people said they wanted a change to the economic system itself. That opinion was much stronger on the left than it was on the right, but nonetheless, it was a majority overall in round one. And so we thought, okay, well, what kind of (laughs) reform Mm. are you talking about? And so we decided to give people some options that they could just just give us a thumbs up or thumbs down to. And there were some obvious left-right differences of opinion over things like, for instance, universal basic income, much more strongly approved of on the left, particularly among Green and and Opportunities Party supporters, than on the right, you know, as you would expect. But there were some more, also some surprising points of agreement. The one thing that really stood out for me and surprised me was when we proposed to people in the survey, we need to use this opportunity to recognise the economic value of voluntary caring and community work we got majority agreement across the political spectrum, even on the right. And that really surprised me because I'd always seen that idea of economically valuing uh, or recognising caring and community work as more of a sort of green or feminist kind of opinion. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that it got a majority uh, thumbs up across the spectrum. When looking at the economic reset that might come in a post-COVID New Zealand what were some of the other things that got thumbs-ups? Two things on which New Zealanders appear to agree and as a majority across the political spectrum were opposition to inviting people to invest in New Zealand by buying New Zealand land, property, and the other one was a strong agreement with uh, boosting investment in research and development and science. So those are things that I think despite all of the political polarisation and arguments about differences of opinion about how we go forward, there were some strong views that pretty much everyone across the board would agree to, uh, regardless of whether they're left or right. Right. Now, so this is the COVID election, as we've everyone's been saying for many months. One of the big issues about the lockdown, of course, is the fact that it was economically damaging. You asked people about that. What did they say? Yeah, this is really interesting because I, in a way, I think this is the, the critical issue of the election, frankly. Uh, so, yes, we asked them, you know, as the economic impact of COVID-19 lockdown affects us, how do you sum up the basic problems? And the options were, do you see the economic costs of lockdown as too high and outweighing the public health benefits. Have we overdone it, I guess, that that sort of point of view? The alternative view was uh, to say it would damage the economy more in the long run if we had no strict lockdown. Now, on the left, it's very clear, particularly for Labour and Green voters, a massive 88% 
uh, in favour of the, the the statement that it would damage the economy more in the long run if we had no strict lockdown. But as you move out further to the right to you know National Act and new Conservative uh, voters, you find majorities saying, oh no, the economic costs of lockdown are too high. They, now, they outweigh the public health benefits. So they're highly sceptical about Jacinda Ardern's science-led elimination strategy. What I'm noticing, however, is that in terms of the campaign, uh, Judith Collins has been saying things like New Zealanders have no tolerance for COVID-19. She didn't go for the Hail Mary pass, which would have been to agree with those people on the right and take some of the voters back from ACT by saying, we can tolerate a certain level of this virus. We can open the economy up. It's worth it in the long run. We can still have controls, but uh, we need to live with the virus. So one thing about the survey was it got swamped by ACT supporters, which did mean that you were able to get some quite detailed information about what ACT voters think. There were some things that perhaps we wouldn't be surprised by, they're less likely to accept the science of climate change, more likely to want to abolish the Māori electorate seats. But there were other, other things too, um, around views on COVID conspiracy theories and, and, and on Trump. So paint us a picture of the ACT supporter that you were able to glean. First of all, I should say that it appears that, particularly in the first round, the ACT Party actually pushed the survey, encouraged their voters to complete it. So we got, uh, in a sense, an over-representation of Mm. uh, ACT supporters, and we could see that influx of ACT supporters into the survey came at the same time as a campaign launch speech by David Seymour. So there must have been a message go out. Um, So thanks, David. Uh, You gave us a lot of information (laughs) about your supporters, and we probably know more about them than you do. So, yeah, it was interesting, actually, and they're an interesting breed. So ACT has always, has originally been a libertarian party. You know, it's been the inheritor of New Zealand's neoliberal Rogernomics heritage. Of course, it was Sir Roger Douglas who was one of the founders of ACT. So therefore, the purest ACT supporter is pro-private enterprise, free markets, individualism, uh, individual responsibility, open borders, you know, that kind of neoliberal policy. However, ACT has always also supported and attracted more of a kind of populist opinion as well. And you could see when Rodney Hyde was the leader that he tended to try and drum up a little bit of support by hitting some of those populist notes, Mm. uh, particularly tougher penalties, three strikes and you're out, more right-wing populist notes in order to, to gain some support. And you can still see from our results that there's, among ACT supporters, there's still quite a bit of that kind of populist opinion. We found, for example, as you mentioned, that ACT supporters, out of all of the parties in Parliament, the supporters of ACT, are most strongly in favour of abolishing the Māori electoral roll. They're the most likely to prefer that government should take a cautious and sceptical approach on climate change, and we're talking there about, you know, 72% of them, and they're the most in favour of just getting back to business as usual rather than reforming the economic system. So three quarters of them uh, held that opinion. 
But also, yeah, we found that they're more likely than supporters of other parties to hold those conspiracy theories about COVID-19. And by conspiracy theories, I mean ideas like COVID is an invention of shadowy forces that want to control us or it's a biological weapon created by one of the world's superpowers. So those kind of common conspiracy theories are definitely represented among or held among many. When I say many, it's still a minority, by the way, don't get me wrong. And to be clear, they are outstripped in the conspiratorial thinking by the new conservatives, aren't they? Absolutely. And we didn't actually have a little tick box for Advanced New Zealand, which has been actively taking advantage of and promoting those theories. But belief in those conspiracy theories grows the further out you get to the right here. The Rise of Act has been one of the features of this campaign, really, from below 1% in 2017 to around 8%, it's looking like, according to the latest polls. What do you think the factors are that have caused that? I think a lot of it was to do with the leadership ructions that went on in National. Right. And also, I think, to some extent, there's a sense that people might be thinking, well, National is kind of messing around. They sort of screwed this election, really. Their campaign is not firing. And they figure, well, now's a bit of a chance to, you know, express our uh, freedom of opinion a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, so to speak, and give ACT a try because David Seymour has, he's done a pretty good job. I've even heard people on the left admitting that David Seymour's done a good job as a sort of one-man band, so to speak, in Parliament and the last couple of terms of Parliament, particularly around his Members' Bill, mm. the end-of-life choice bill, which, of course, we'll be voting on in the referendum. So, yeah, I think that there's been a, a migration, so to speak, from National to Act. It's quite clear that Judith Collins is pretty concerned about not just the loss of support to Labour, but the loss of support from National to the Act party, and that's mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, her party's prospects some damage. Some of them are coming from New Zealand first too, presumably. Is there anywhere else that they're coming from? Or are there some people who are energised to vote for the first time and are are pitching in with ACT? Well, in terms of voter shifts, as I understand it anyway, um, New Zealand first has basically broken up to the left and to the right. Right. So the drop in New Zealand first support has partly been to the benefit of Labour. But yes, it's also gone to some extent to National ACT and to... uh, new Conservatives. So Mm -hmm. this kind of reflects the problem that New Zealand first had, that it had a kind of left-leaning base and a right-leaning base. And when Winston Peters put his cards on the table and went to support Labour, his more conservative support base pretty quickly abandoned him. And uh, yeah, so some of them have gone to ACT. So ACT has definitely benefited from uh, the demise of New Zealand first. Uh, And yes, I think possibly some first-time voters, uh, you know, there's a lot of young people out there who find ACT's philosophy and leadership really appealing. So I think possibly some first-time voters might go for ACT, but definitely National has lost a chunk to ACT as well. But it could be fun to watch, actually, (laughs) Um, because, yeah, people who are voting for ACT probably haven't thought through the, the, the consequences. So certainly, yeah, David Seymour now has experience under his belt, He definitely looked green when he first appeared in Parliament as leader of ACT. But now, you know, he's he's confident, he's cheeky, he's, you know, got some points on the board, but he's been able to do it all for himself. He hasn't had to lead a team. So it's highly likely that he will be 
introducing into Parliament a caucus of people who are complete newbies to Parliament. And, you know, they're, let's say, let's just assume they're all really good people, but they come from different backgrounds, they don't have experience, and now uh, David has to learn uh, that he can't be the lone voice anymore. He has to manage a team. It's not really clear how cohesive that team is. They've never had to work before as as a team. And so I would say this will be one to watch and it could be quite amusing as we uh, go through the next term of Parliament. ACT has suffered in the past from this kind of parachuting in of people who often have an agenda of their own and have caused quite considerable embarrassment. Just finally, Grant, we know from last time that you're not into making predictions and we, and we won't ask you to do that. But in a presentation you, re- you recently gave, you said a few things are looking likely. A strong turnout, a change in the makeup of the government and a reduction in the number of parties represented in Parliament. And you also posed the question as to whether this election was going to be a significant turning point. What did you mean by that? I really think this is a really, really important election for a whole bunch of reasons because it's it's just bent the norms, you know, twisted the rules of New Zealand politics. I think it could be seen in the long run as a real turning point. I'm a little bit reluctant to make predictions because everything is so volatile, particularly since the rise of populism in 2016. And then the New Zealand election in 2017 was such a roller coaster ride. And we've seen heaps of volatility in polls since 2017 election as well. But I think, I think, though, that underlying this is not just about this election. We've seen so many unprecedented things just around the election process itself, for example, the last-minute delay by four weeks, the, the fact that the Prime Minister has been having to make significant government policy announcements about the lockdown levels during the campaign period, which is kind of bending constitutional convention, uh, but had to be done. It's going to keep us politics commentators busy for quite some time as we chew over the the consequences of this election. But I would also suggest that in the long run, this is going to be a turning point in terms of things like the nature of MMP parliaments, uh, I think, are going to be altered by this election. What what do you mean by that? Well, I I think the, the main thing that I think is happening is the reduction in the number of parties represented in the House. And so that process really took a further step downwards in terms of number of parties at the last election when we lost United Future and the Māori Party. Now, watch this space. Who knows, the Māori Party might win one of those Māori seats and that will will stymie me a little bit. But the other important thing is that with the most probable demise of New Zealand First is that we won't have that party in the middle that can hold the balance of power The other thing that I've been saying for quite some time, even before COVID came along, is be careful what you ask for if you're wanting to get rid of Winston Peters, because one day I think we may look back and say, hey, Winston, all is forgiven, because what replaces Winston's centrist populist party could be something rather more virulent and far right. Because I can assure you that the opinions that would fuel and support a far-right populist party are more prevalent in New Zealand than we would like to think. And the Stuff Massey surveys in 2017 in particular highlighted that. And so to some extent, when I looked at it, I thought, well, 
the good thing about Winston is that he soaks up all of that opinion, but he's not anti-establishment. He's so pro-establishment, you know. You just have to look at the way he dresses. He doesn't really want to rock the boat. He's a career politician. He knows how to play the game. He just knows how to go out and, you know, uh, drum up that populist opinion. And then when he gets into coalition negotiations, certain things are just off the table. No, I didn't mean that. You know, let's move on with the real business. So I think, I I don't want to be a prophet of doom or anything or, or scare people, but I do think we need to be aware that um, the potential for a far-right anti-immigration populist party is in New Zealand. The, opinion, the necessary opinions, the racist anti-immigrant opinions, are unfortunately there. Uh, they just need to be collected up and galvanised. And I, look, I, for heaven's sake, I hope that the wrong person isn't listening to this and taking inspiration from it. But I'm warning you, <laughs> OK? It's out there, and we could end up with something like that. I certainly hope we don't, because if you look at the effect of those parties in, say, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, Austria, perfectly respectable, you know, uh, Western democracies, those political parties uh, cause a lot of damage. Uh, You know, look at Germany, for instance, where the Social Democrats have had to support Angela Merkel and her Christian Democrats uh, in order to form a government. Very, very difficult for the left-wing party to do that. It's essentially like having a national Labour coalition in order to keep a virulent right-wing party out of government. Well, it's in, in the voters' hands tomorrow and we'll see what unfolds. Grant Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Thank you. It's been great. That was the Tic Tic Podcast. Mo te ramere, whiringa anuku tukau, ma ono. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Grant Duncan, Carmen Parahi, Paul Penfold, Patrick Crudson, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email tictic at stuff.co.nz. Get in while you can. If you want to support Stuff Journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. If you haven't already, Tic Tickers, get out and vote. And don't forget, from 7 o'clock on Saturday, Stuff is hosting an election live stream where you'll hear from Stuff journalists all around the country, as well as expert political analysis, plus some input of arguable value from myself and from Adam. Go to stuff.co.nz for all the ways to watch. Mate wa. Mate wa.